Hey everyone, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses Podcast, and very sadly, we have to talk about Christian nationalism. I don't want to talk about this. Let me just make this real clear from the beginning. Um, This is a waste of our time. We have a huge problem going on in the world. Christian nationalism has forwarded itself as an obviously bad answer to that problem, and now we have to waste time fighting, as it were, to our right flank fighting very holy people, fighting people who stand in various ways to gain, primarily in terms of power and influence, should this go through. And it's a waste of valuable time and resources during a point in American history where we don't really have those time, that time or those resources. So this is regrettable. Um, I recently released a podcast uh, under my other branding, but I made it public. It's called James Lindsay Only Subs. It's my fun podcast for my subscribers. Uh, Usually it's behind a paywall. I let that one be free. It was called Is Michael O'Fallon a Christian Nationalist? And I talked talked some about how Christian nationalism is an obvious trap. That's not a hard case to make. I mean, it's actually obvious in and of itself. Um, But I talked about a few important points. Punchline, if you haven't listened to that other shorter podcast, no, Michael O'Fallon is not a Christian nationalist. He's seen this trap for years. He's seen it coming. He's had the wisdom not only to uh, avoid stepping into that trap despite his Christian beliefs and his social and political conservatism, uh, but also to warn others in the church who should know better than to step into this trap. But I want to give you a flavor just to give you an idea of how obvious a trap this is. If you don't think it's already a trap, that this is a term already, you know, weaponized by the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, that it's something already on their their radar. It's something that we've been hearing about for years from the left. There's a rise in Christian nationalism. There's a rise in Christian nationalism. If you don't understand that for the average, especially left-leaning normie, there's no difference. There's no daylight between the concepts of Christian nationalism and white nationalism. And so if the Department of Justice or the Department of Homeland Security or something of that kind were to come out and say do an extremism stand down, uh, the public is going to understand Christian nationalism in the same vein. And they're going to believe the lies about white nationalism being the biggest problem uh, in America. Well, at the moment we have... uh, Literally at the moment, just coming out the last few days, we have a major um, poll coming out. NPR is breathless about it. Uh, MSNBC is is or MSN, I'm sorry, is is breathless about it. MSN, the left's new Christian nationalism scale or scare, sorry, um, the left's new Christian national nationalism scare. ABC News, Christian nationalism threatens democracy. Some experts say. That's from last fall, actually, not brand new. Uh, Yale putting out the end of the year in October last year, understanding white Christian nationalism. Uh, Faith.yale.edu putting out around the same time frame, violence, fascism, and Christian nationalism. What do you think they're going to tie the idea of Christian nationalism to? What do you think they're going to tie? NPR, two years ago, faith leaders speak out against Christian nationalism. Just a few days ago, Washington Post, opinion, PRRI survey on Christian nationalism is alarming. It says in their adherents of Christian nationalism are nearly seven times as likely as rejectors to agree that true patriots might have to resort to violence to save our country. NPR just puts out this article about that 
survey, which is being touted everywhere through left and centrist and mainstream media. Survey, more than half of Republicans support Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism needs to be dis- distinguished from civil, uh, civil religion, replies the Religion News Service. Uh, we have, um, what do we have? I'm looking for the MP article. I've got a million articles that I opened because it's everywhere right now. Back in 2020, Trump has, right before the election, Trump has emboldened Christian nationalists and sparked a rise in violence. Uh Uh-oh, that sounds like it might tie into January 6th, right? Uh, Christian nationalism on the rise. This just yesterday, from when I'm recording this, Christian nationalism, and this is NPR, Christian nationalism on the rise as it enjoys more Republican support. Survey, half of Republicans support Christian nationalism. Of course, this should all sound ridiculous unless you understand that the left builds out narratives and then plugs things into those narratives that people are likely to now believe. And that's one of their major magic tricks. I've been talking about this magic trick for a long time, and it's almost like these Christians that think that Christian nationalism is a good idea as a reaction is going to work some like it's almost like they're like they're like they're stepping willingly into a trap or in fact that they are. Uh, an operation, in fact, I call it Operation Christian Nationalism, to create this January 6th 2.0 trap. Christian nationalism is taking hold in the U.S., PRRI report shows. The new civil rights movement, just yesterday, majority of Republicans support Christian nationalism. This is insane. This is These are the kinds of things. What else do we have? Just to make a little bit more fine of a point on it. January 6th, this is in Time Magazine, of course, that's the World Economic Forum magazine. When was this? As sweet videos and stuff. Um, not even sure when the date was. Oh, this was January 6th of this year. January 6th may have been only the first wave of Christian nationalist violence. That's Time Magazine. Time Magazine again, the Christian nationalist forces that terrorized me of a child have grown only more powerful. Do you not see the trajectory of this narrative. What do you think this movement is being set up for? Salon, famously garbage left-wing site. How Christian nationalism drove the insurrection, a religious history of January 6th. All these ties back to January 6th. And so you think, no, there's no way these people are really pushing Christian nationalism in this kind of environment. But no, actually they are. Major ministries are. Christian nationalism, New York Times, from a year ago, January 6th, 2022, Christian nationalism is one of Trump's most powerful weapons. That's what they choose to publish on the on the anniversary of January 6th, which is their, of course, fake uh, huge insurrection thing that they're using to cover up their own real insurrection. Are you catching on to what's going on here? So what in the world is this? I mostly am going to present in this podcast, I'm going to just give you a little bit of a sense of a tale of two wolves, basically, um, which is kind of funny. Stephen Wolf, who wrote a book called The Case for Christian Nationalism, uh, which came out last year and was a major bestseller. I have only read excerpts from this book and a few reviews, so to be fair, I have not read the 475-page Waste of Time volume that he penned. Uh, and then William Wolf, who works for the Standing for Freedom Center, if I have that right, which is actually associated with Liberty University, which I typically have a good relationship with, um, who presents a, a softer and kinder version. And that's actually part of what I'm going to talk about. Well, let me, I'll just uh, point out, you know, I said that, that there's this um, idea that mainstream people, normies, left of center, especially, will 
immediately see as synonymous Christian nationalism and white nationalism. This is so important that the, in the Standing for Freedom Center uh, in October of 2021, William Wolfe himself, and it'll be difficult to keep these two wolves straight, by the way, uh, William Wolfe himself wrote, I, should, I guess I should say it more carefully, right? Not wolves with a V, but wolves with an F, right? I should be more careful, right? Wolves. Um, oh, did I do it again? Uh, my bad. Um, so in October of 2021, he was forced for the Standing for Freedom Center under Liberty University's umbrella to publish an article. And if I'm not wrong, I saw this was published somewhere else as well, and I don't know which one was first, uh, saying that no, a Christian worldview isn't a code word for whiteness. Um, because so many people think it is that he's having to run a defense article on this. Right. And so as it turns out, that's exactly what's going to happen. And we're going to see some concerning issues with regard to that in Stephen Wolf's writings about Christian nationalism directly. And so mostly though, what I'm going to do after presenting or a little bit of what's going on here is start asking some questions. I have some questions of this movement, which I consider an operation. This movement is tied to things I'm concerned about. I know that the Claremont Institute is interested in it. I know that the so-called movement called NatCon or National Conservatism, which is sort of tipping post-liberal, meaning post-constitution, meaning post-America, is interested in it. And in fact, most of it seems to be centered in this national conservatism, which is also sometimes billed as a workers' party, you know, a national conservative workers' party which doesn't sound like a setup at all in any way whatsoever. It's a brilliant idea to pursue this. Um, what a great branding they came up with for this. And definitely not a trap we're all going to walk into. Uh, but I want to ask a lot of questions about this. And the reason I have so many questions is something that I want to present to you about the differences between these two wolves. 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 I'm trying to do it. I promise. Sort of. So I know less about Stephen Wolf, honestly. Um, I know that he did a podcast, and I wish I had the recording to play for you. I know that he did a podcast where he said that uh, atheism will be stamped out in his Christian nationalist thing. It will be stamped out, he said. It will be illegal. And so, you know, as somebody who doesn't have a religious belief myself, I kind of wonder where that puts me, and it kind of gets my alarm up. Like, maybe this isn't the America I recognize. Maybe this isn't the America that exists under the First Amendment. Um... So he's a little harder. The softer wolf, William Wolf, uh, I'll just read his bio from the Standing for Freedom Center to give you an idea who he is. I don't know much about him either. I know that he is arrogant and thin-skinned and says really stupid shit on Twitter and then gets mad when people point it out that he was really dumb. My favorite of those is where he put out that we shouldn't take advice from atheists, which is, of course, me. And uh, then he put out a podcast like two days later with him talking with my book on the bookshelf directly behind him, Visible. And he promoted instead Owen Strayan's book and said, you should read this book instead, but Owen Strayan's book cites me about a dozen times. So yeah, don't get your ideas from atheists. Get their ideas from Christians who use atheists to get their ideas, including William Wolfe himself. Right. Got you. Okay. This is why I said that he's arrogant and stupid. I mean, maybe he's a smart man, but he's not smart on Twitter. He's not smart about what he's doing. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly. But besides that, let's read his his bio. Maybe we can find a reason for his his purposecacity and depth here. His his, his stunning 
you know, demonstration of sparkling brilliance. Where did William Wolfe work before he worked for the Standing for Freedom Center at Liberty University? A 10-year veteran of the conservative political movement, William Wolfe served as a senior official in the Trump administration, both at the Pentagon and the Department of State. Oh, shit. He worked for the State Department. Oh, okay. Oh, right. That explains the intelligence gap. Prior to his service in the administration, he worked for Heritage Action for America and is a congressional staffer for three members of Congress, including former Rep Representative Dave Brad. By the way, Dave is, uh, I, all I know about, I know Dave. Dave, um, I associate with Liberty. I assume he's closely tied with Liberty. Uh, he has a BA in history from Covenant College and is currently, at this time, I think he has now finished this. Uh, I know he has now finished this. I saw his graduation robes and is finishing his Master of Divinity at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Congratulations on your graduation, William. Um, it's like where he, another sparkling point of genius of Mr. Wolf, uh, the lesser, we'll call Stephen Wolf, Stephen Wolf, the, Mr. Wolf the Greater. Um, if Mr. Wolf the Lesser was that he said that he can help younger 30-year-old people, which I assume he is, uh, be able to identify when a pastor, he says that he, he said something along the lines of not knowing that he, you know, if a pastor is professing the gospel or not is what it is, but he can help you identify whether or not they're actually soft woke. But of course, for those in the know, they know that Mr. Wolf the Lesser has a very large volume uh, of, of, of history with Mark Dever, who is soft woke. In fact, he's one of the biggest woke peddlers into the Southern Baptist Convention pretending he's conservative. And apparently, we must surmise that William Wolfe, Mr. Wolfe the Lesser, discovered his ability or determined his ability or acquired his ability to find the soft woke by working directly for one for so long, working directly with one. I think he got baptized by him, as a matter of fact, and, and worked directly with him. So anyway, I digress. Maybe some of those details are off. I don't actually find these wolves very interesting, to be honest with you. Like I said, this is all a waste of my time, but it's going to be consequential because the narrative arc, you remember when I wrote, I did that podcast, Narrative Arc Fitting, where what the left does strategically is writes out a narrative arc, and then they wait for evidence to plug into that narrative arc, just like and I explained with the drag Floyd phenomenon, and now we have trans Floyd phenomenon, that they build out this long arc, stochastic terrorism rising anti-LGBTQ hate. And what they do is they wait for an event, plug it into that long arc. The police are racist. The police are racist. The police are racist. George Floyd plugged in. Proof of worldview. Boom. And now we have riots. Drag Floyd. Anti-LGBTQ hate is on the rise. We have to do something about the rising tide of anti-LGBTQ hate. And what do all the articles say? Well, Elon Musk taking over Twitter is letting all these anti-LGBTQ figures back on and they're stochastic terrorists. So what's going to have to happen is we're going to have to have the government step in after the precipitating event comes and we're going to have to seize control of the social media apparatus that, that Elon Musk has taken over with Twitter and the others to clamp down on rising anti-LGBTQ hate, which is leading to youth suicides, which is leading to drag Floyd, you know, which is what I, is a code name I gave for an operation to provoke people into violence against a drag queen with these re relentless drag queen provocations. And um, of course, these reactions like Christian nationalism, by the way, don't understand literally literally that it is in their book, their strategy book, which is called Beautiful Trouble, which I also did a podcast about. It is literally in their book that your real action, this is the title of the principle, which is the updated rules for radicals for the 21st century. It's called Beautiful Trouble. It's at beautifultrouble.org. You can go there and see it yourself. And the principle is the real action is your target's reaction. 
well, here we have a reactionary movement, don't we? The real target. And so what did, you know, they build out that narrative arc. Anti-LGBTQ hate is on the rise. There's stochastic terrorism driving it. And all the articles point to Elon Musk and a wild, wild west of Twitter under his dominion that allows for this to happen. And next thing you know, we're going to have a tragedy. And the tragedy is going to be proof that they were right all along. And Congress and the government and the DOJ and the FCC or whoever are going to have to step in and start taking steps. Do you get it? Do you get it? Okay, so what do we have here? We have a narrative arc that's being built well before January 6th that Christian nationalism is the problem. That Christian nationalism leads to violence. That Christian nationalism is massively on the rise. That Christian nationalism is a hotbed for white nationalism and terrorist activity. I wonder what's going to happen. And it's all tied to January 6th. January 6th was the warm-up act for the real Christian reaction under Christian nationalism. Do you see it? This is how they operate. This is the leftist strategy, and these fools are either unintentionally, meaning stupidly, meaning hee-haw nationalism stepping into it. I said that there are two forms of Christian nationalism on Twitter a while back. Hee-haw nationalism is what one of them should be called. That's these goodly Christian types who should know better, who don't know better, who aren't listening to Mr. O'Fallon, who's warning most of them in person and taking massive flack for it, uh, completely unjustified flack for it, because he's honestly got their best interests in in mind and he's making sense maybe he's not articulating it as well as it needs to be so there's hee-haw nationalism and maybe william wolf is hee-haw nationalism i don't know he's a state department guy though so good question um but then there's this ecumenical integralism that's a fancy word other one right and the point is though that this is a dragnet that's being pointed toward january 6th the real deal that's a problem guys Pay attention. Do not get swept up in this. So William Wolf and Stephen Wolf and all these guys pushing this crap are going to fly high above the clouds. And Grandma out of the pew is going to jail when this comes down. Just like Grandma, after Ray Epps told her to go into the Capitol, went to jail. That's how this works. And they're going to fly on by. So, you know, for whatever reason, these guys are putting out their ideas and putting out their information. And, oh, well, we need a Christian nation and all this. We haven't even talked about how stupid this idea is yet. We're still just talking about how obvious it is that it's a trap. And where's the trap pointing? Where's the narrative arc leading? The narrative arc is leading to J6 2.0. And J6 2.0 is going to, just like with Drag Floyd, is going to require massive clampdowns on freedom of speech. Maybe clampdowns on freedom of movement. Maybe clampdowns downs on freedom of religious practice. There are going to be massive changes, maybe Patriot Act 2 or 3 or 5 or whatever one we're up to. Something to contain this massive problem that now apparently, according to the new survey that's laundering this idea in NPR and everybody else breathlessly reporting on it, half of Republicans now support this. We have Marjorie Taylor Greene came out and said it publicly. I get the impulse, but it was stupid. And I'm friends with Marjorie as far as it goes. Um, it's stupid. You can't adopt a leftist term that has been weaponized against you. If you're going to go around and say that you actually are racist, you fell for one of the tricks of, of CRT. You don't adopt the terms that are weaponized against you. You do not have the, 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 the resources, the position, uh, you don't have any of the necessary tools to be able to do what they call an act of strategic resistance. You don't have the ability to engage in that kind of activism so stupidly. You are the reaction. And remember, your target's reaction is the real action. That's one of their core principles. Okay. So 
what is Christian nationalism before I start asking some questions about it? And again, we have these two pictures, and it's going to be very important because we, we have Wolf the Greater, Mr. Wolf the Greater, and Stephen Wolf, and we have Mr. Wolf the Lesser, and it's William Wolf, uh, presenting two very different views, right? And luckily, Mr. Wolf the Greater wrote a book about it that's horrifying, and we can actually see that. Mr. Wolf the Lesser has um, portrayed something a little bit differently that's very waffly and very unclear, and that's where a lot of the questions start to come in. And then which one of those is serious is actually a question, but we're going to find out that it's both strategically for a reason. And we can see that, again, considering this an op is an, oper an operation, a mass line, where either the left is using the right or elements within the right are playing a game in order to discredit, say, MAGA or like whatever it happens to be that they're going to try to ensnare in this trap. Um, which, you know, all eyes on the Lincoln Project, all eyes on this crap. Uh, what, it, what do they mean by this? Well, um, it's, it's not clear, <laughs> frankly. Uh, Mr. Wolf the Greater is much more clear. But uh, Mr. Wolf the Lesser, William, says Christianity is about making God's word the final, sorry, the first and final authority on all of life, beginning first with our own lives and prejudices. So this is him explaining why it's not white or whiteness, it's something else, right? And that's what he says. It's um, uh, a completely different thing. It's about God, he says, he says, it's about making God's word the first and final authority on all life, beginning first with our own lives and prejudices. A Christian worldview, when applied correctly, both one, interprets and challenges the culture, calling it to repentance, and two, convicts the Christian when they, too, are out of line. Okay. Uh, he says, the newly formed Center for Biblical Worldview at the Family Research Council defines it like this, quote, we believe a person exhibits a biblical worldview when their beliefs and actions are aligned with the Bible, acknowledging its truth and applicability to every area of life, end quote. Okay, he says this is profoundly biblical, and he gives a number of uh, biblical references, uh, number being two, Luke 10, 27, and Romans 12, 1 through 2. Um, so it's profoundly biblical, uh, but the the question becomes, what is Christian nationalism? Because he said what a Christian worldview is. Well, it's a nation based off of Christian worldview. Because he says at the end, uh, Christian worldview is just biblical. He says, quote, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, quoting 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Okay, so then we have this idea, and there's a lot of Christian worldview here, but that's what this article is about. What is Christian nationalism for him? Well, it's a nation based off of a Christian worldview. It's one informed by a Christian worldview. It's one where the separation of church and state has uh, been interpreted to mean that we will not have the government necessarily dictating worship, thus con uh, consistent with the First Amendment, which becomes a problem obviously, but we will have the the nation culturally Christian and have Christian leaders informing the state on what to do, uh, guiding the state. And this, of course, opens a lot of questions. So, so when you see these kind of kindly pastors that are in what I would say hee-haw nationalism instead of ecumenical integralism, which I'll come back to in just a second because uh, I forgot that I didn't finish that up. Like I said, I'm freewheeling here a little bit. Um, what we have with these kindly hee-haw nationalism pastors 
unfortunately, is when they go up to speak about this is what you have is death by a thousand qualifications. That was a point I started to make earlier and got diverted. Death by a thousand qualifications. They have to stand up and they say, well, we want a Christian nation, but this, but that. And we don't mean that, but we don't mean this. So that at the end of the day, either it doesn't mean anything, or at least nothing actionable, or it's just kind of an aspiration, or it doesn't mean anything at all, or... Um, what it means is just absolutely indiscernible to anybody, which is that kind of foggy gray area of concept where, you know, postmodernists like to live and they like to bounce back and forth between these things. Okay. So what about this, the Catholic, the, sorry, not Catholic integralist, Catholic integralism is actually what this harder side, Stephen Wolf, or Mr. Wolf, the greater Stephen Wolf is closer to pushing, although he's technically not an integralist explicitly himself. He's a Protestant. Uh, what we have in that case, the Catholics came up with this program called integralism. It was very popular in the in South America, and it was very allegedly good at getting rid of communists. The what, it, what the integral part, or integrate part, or integralism part is integrating church and state. It's removing any barriers between church and state, which in German is pronounced creating a Reich, like a Fourth Reich or something. Well, they attempted these kind of like religious fascist, Catholic fascist, integralist movements in South America, famous with helicopter rides and so on. And it was all badass and stuff. And now everyone in those countries is communist again. It didn't actually get rid of the problem. It just got rid of a lot of the liberties, the civil liberty protections that people had that the left wasn't actually that successful in getting rid of otherwise. And it got rid of them. And then when the left came back and took back over, but now with massive moral authority because they had fascist dictators, um, military dictators, these juntas and whatever. Now you have this whole new situation, unfortunately, where you know you don't have any liberties and the left doesn't have to work to get rid of them because the, the, the integralists got rid of them for them. And it turns out, you know, you think, well, how in the world could that have happened? Well, first of all, people don't like fascists. People are afraid of right-wing overreach. People identify right-wing overreach. They're trained very well to do so. They're very afraid of it. And so um, it drains your moral authority when you create a regime like that. I mean, you can be, be as big a fran, uh, fan of Franco or Pinochet or whoever as you want, but the fact of the matter is that what happens in practice is that they become boogeymen that give the left all the moral authority for 50 years after their usually short-lived regimes fall apart, um, like we see in Spain, like we see throughout South America. Um, meanwhile, you, what is it? Well, it's integrating the Catholic Church into the state, right? Into these fascist states. Well, here's the problem. Not only is fascism, as I've articulated many times, still part of the dialectical game. Uh, so thus, actually not different. It's right-wing Hegelian believing that it has the one true uh, understanding of Christianity that it's going to now impose upon its population or whatever, uh, and, and of, of course, business and whatever else. Uh, not only is that the case, but it turns out that the Catholic Church was sort of heavily infested with what, what was called liberation or is called liberation theology, which is communism pretending to be Catholic. And so you have liberation theologians in the mix. So you have subversives all throughout the thing that you're making. And good luck with this mess. And you say, well, that doesn't apply in the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, wait, yes, it does. We were just talking about Mark Dever and these soft woke guys. We know about Jamar Tisby. We could name names. <laughs> we could name names. Uh, we don't have to keep going. But we do know that that there's a massive woke problem in the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, uh, the PCA. And people ask questions when I said this before. No, he means PCUSA, right? And Presbyterian Church, United States. No, 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 no. I mean PCA. I mean, I meant what I said. It's woke too. You know, that's a conservative one. It's woke too. It's woke too. 
these things got eaten alive from within through the same little mechanisms, but these people are pretending to be conservatives better than uh, than in, say, the PCUSA. Okay, so what happens is what you have happening here is you actually have Protestants who have teamed up with actual Catholic integralists who want to abolish church and state. And they are, so the Protestant side of this has spoken to me and they've told me, you don't want these Catholic guys taking over. So, you know, back up us, the Protestant people who happen to be working with them doing the same thing. And it's like, well, um, uh, guys, I don't think so. And so, and then it doesn't resolve the trap. But those guys know what they're doing. This isn't this isn't hee-haw nationalism. Those guys know what they're going after. So you don't see death by a thousand qualifications there. You see very bold, strident statements like are made by uh, by Wolf the Greater, um, Stephen Wolf. Uh, it's really probably worthwhile telling you what some of Stephen Wolf what Stephen Wolf said in Stephen Wolf's own words. Um, let me see if I can find some of these pieces. Uh, so he kind of bases all of his um, argument uh, on uh, about what nationalism is, which is he does he defines nation in the, kind of the same way that Kendi would define racism. It's very circular. A nation is basically a nation or a thing that does national things. Um, but he tries to tie it back to Genesis and Adam. And there was this big fight on Twitter with me where I said it looked very Gnostic where he's talking about Adam's prelapsarian state, which is a word that you're only allowed to use when you play Dungeons and Dragons and Narnia. Um, but uh, he, he's basing it off of this view of, of of Adam and Eve. So he writes in the book, they would have formed communities that were distinct or separate nations, be, talking about the children of Adam and Eve in even if there had been no fall of man, uh, because even unfallen man would have been bounded by geography, arability, and other factors. Each community would have been culturally distinct since they would have uh, would have been at least somewhat separated from others and would have developed their own way of life and culture, though without any sin. And then he goes on and says, Adam's progeny would have formed many nations on the earth, and thus the formation of nations is part of God's design and intention for man. And so, of course, where you're going to plug that in, and this is, by the way, for anybody wondering, because of the, you know, what's included and skipped in this, I am, I have not read Stephen's book. Uh, I am quoting from, in fact, uh, a very thorough review done by Neil Shenvey on his blog, Shenvey Apologetics, uh, which I encourage you to look up and read for yourself. It's in four parts, four pages. Uh, but it, 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 you're going to see with this plugged in. So God intended there to be nations according to his interpretation of what the Garden of Eden must have been like. Um, I have some questions about been bounded by arability. It uh, wasn't the Garden of Eden perfect and without need. Why is there going to be variations in arability in the garden then? Uh, why are there going to be places of, of relative privation versus others in the Garden of Eden in the unfallen state of the world? Like this doesn't actually make sense as far as I understand. I mean, maybe I'm the one, I'm outside, you're not supposed to take theology lessons from atheists from what these people say. Maybe I'm the one who doesn't understand what the Garden of Eden was like, but then again, Guys, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't think it was real. I'm sorry. I just, I, I, it's so weird to argue about these things. I don't even, I think it's a myth. I don't think it's real. I'm not a Christian. But the plug-in is that, well, God intended nations, and obviously Christianity is the fulfillment of God's plan in terms of salvation of people, so obviously he intended nations to be Christian if they're uh, up and up, on the up and up with him, which, you know, Israel can take a take a um take up whatever issues they want with that on their own terms um he later says just reading again from shenvi's summary the fall of man placed 
man, excuse me, the fall of man placed man in a state of sin, the state of sin or total depravity. P.S. We're now dealing with Calvinism sort of here, uh, is misunderstood even in reformed circles. The fall's principle effects, they say even within reformed circles, if you're not like pretty damn active in, in Protestant Christian life, you don't know what you, you don't even know what that means. You don't even know what it means because they live in Narnia and they think they're going to like take over the nation, which means they're going to have to be tyrants because 90% of the population doesn't even know what the hell they're talking about. They don't use words like prelapsarian. They don't pontificate on what life might have been like in arability and nation formation in the Garden of Eden had the fall never occurred. They don't know what reformed means. They don't buy into, they might believe in sin, but they probably don't buy into total depravity or the points of Calvinism. These people are in Narnia, which means they're off in their own world. This isn't an insult. I, I like C.S. Lewis. I like the Chronicles of Narnia. I understand William, Mr. Wolf the Lesser, wanted to come and tell me, like, because I said, dude, you're in Narnia. You don't, like, what I was saying is people don't pay attention to you. They don't pay attention to your details. You don't have the power you think you do. You spend a lot of time talking to people in your bubble, which is called Narnia, where you have some influence and status. But outside of Narnia, like, the only way to get there is like a little girl walking through a wardrobe. Like nobody goes there. Nobody knows what you're talking about. So the only way you're going to get the majority of the population, especially in a place like the United States where we literally do have religious liberty, cultural liberty, the only way you're going to get a majority of the population to go along with your program is by forcing it. And that's where Mr. Wolf the Greater comes in. And that's where all these questions I'm going to have come up because I have some real questions about this. But anyway, reform circles. He says the falls principle effect concerning man's relationship to God and the promises of heavenly life. Uh, I messed that up. The falls principle effect concerned man's relationship to God and the promise, the promised heavenly life for it removed man's highest gifts. Those that drew him to heavenly life. This is Mr. Wolf the Greater speaking. Man retains his earthly gifts, those that lead him to the fundamental things of earthly life, such as family formation and civil society. Thus, man still has his uh, original instincts and knows the principles of right action, which incline him to do what is good. So he's saying, you know, that we have this sense of goodness. Shenvey ties this to a quote that's on page 22 on a, to another quote on page 150 through 151. He says it's also evident from both instinct and and reason that we ought to prefer our own nation and countrymen over others. This is a justification, obviously, for nationalism. This instinct is not from the fall or due to sin. It is natural and therefore good. Okay, so he's setting up the idea that it's a Christian concept to have nationalism, and so thus we have to think about what that means. But then furthermore, we're going to have to infuse Christianity into nationalism, because if nationalism is itself a Christian concept something deemed godly and good under Christianity, then we're going to have to put Christianity into that or else it isn't going to make sense. Um, and, you know, there's some other uh, kind of theology type stuff here. Um, lots of, you know, that which is natural is good for you, blah, 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 kind of stuff. But I'm really concerned because he has this idea Um of how the government is going to be organized, right? And so, for example, he says, um, let me find it so I just quote him and I don't rip off from, from Neil. Uh, where is it? Because these are Neil's words. Let me actually just read this paragraph from Neil. 
He says, if this is Neil Shenvey speaking, if the basic end of civil government to order, that is to orient earthly life to heavenly life, has not changed, then the laws in every nation should... This is actually, sorry, this appears to... There is a quote. Oh, I got it. I got you, sir. It's not changed. And the laws in every nation should still order earthly life to heavenly life. Now, quoting Stephen Wolf, ordering people to heavenly life is a natural end for even the generic nation. So in other words, the nation's job is to orient people toward heavenly life. Shenvey explains, in other words, if the fall hadn't happened, civil governments would still have existed and would still have instructed citizens to keep all Ten Commandments. Therefore, civil governments today should instruct their citizens to keep all Ten Commandments. Of course, now quoting uh, Wolf, the soul post-fall means of obtaining heavenly good is in Christ, end quote. Now we come back to Shenvey. However, natural revelation still demonstrates that God exists, so non-Christian or secular nations are obligated to recognize, implement, and obey God's law, even if they fail to do so. But more importantly, the civil government of a Christian nation should fulfill its purpose of seeking the temporal and eternal good of its people by supporting Christianity. So the government's supposed to support Christianity. And this is, this is Shenby summarizing Wolf's argument. And he says, Wolf summarizes this point clearly. This is the next paragraph. So this is a, a kind of a, a long pair of quotes from, from Stephen. Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater. The question is whether a Christian magistrate having civil rule over a civil society of Christians may punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expression of such things in order to prevent, one, any injury to the souls of the people of God, two, the subversion of the Christian government, Christian culture, or spiritual discipline, or three, civil disruption or unrest. Modern religious liberty advocates deny this, and I affirm it. Okay, so that's page 359. Now, having just read that podcast for you guys where I went through that speech from Mao, that's almost exactly like Mao. Here now we have Christian in place of socialism. So the idea is that rather than having a government that settles its questions by appealing to Christian author socialist authority and that supports the party, and that we look at the idea of there are the people inside, which are the people, and then there are, in this case, Christians, or then there are people on the outside. And he says that, right? Having civil rule over a civil society of Christians may punish blah, 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 right? Okay. And so... Um, first of all, uh, that's exactly what you have to be concerned about. So you have a civil society of Christians. What about everybody else? Well, what are they going to do? Well, with Mao, it was simple. You either join or you get persecuted. We take away their freedom of speech, blah, blah, blah. I'm not saying that Stephen Wolf is like Mao. I'm saying that when you start talking like this, you better be paying attention. This is serious. This is very important because he's saying that the question is whether a Christian magistrate, so it could be a, social, a socialist commissar, having civil rule over a civil society of Christians or having civil rule over a civil society of socialists may punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expression of such things in order to, one, these are the exact kinds of reasons that Mao gave. Any injury to the souls of the people of God. Well, he said any injury to the party or its ability to govern or to socialism itself or the ability of the, the people to believe in social, the masses to accept socialism, to the subversion of the Christian government. This is something that, oh, sorry, Christian government, Christian culture, and spiritual discipline. This is exactly what Mao said, is that anything, what puts you in the category of the enemy is that which subverts socialism. Okay, so this is, I'm not saying that we're dealing with the same philosophy or the same theology or the same religious structure. I'm saying we're dealing with the same political application atop that religious structure. 
socialism as one Christianity under, I guess, Stephen Wolf's view of what constitutes Christianity, because his theology informs all of these decisions. And I'm assured by some other people that his theology is quite bad. Um, I'm not the authority to make that. But this is exactly what Mao says. It makes you an enemy, is that you are possibly doing injury to the people, which is the society of Christians in this case. The subversion of the Christian government, so the subversion of the, the Communist Party, Christian culture, socialist culture, or spiritual dis discipline. Well, Mao explicitly said in that speech that what you actually need in order to be able, you can have all the freedom you want, he says, in communist China under the CCP. You have all the freedom you want, but freedom is paired dialectically with discipline. You see, you only have freedom when you have discipline, right? And you have to have socialist discipline, he said. And well, here we have spiritual or Christian discipline. And then three, civil disruption or unrest. That's exactly the thing Mao also names. This is, having just read that speech on Mao, this is concerning to see this. And he says, modern religious liberty advocates deny this should be the case, but I affirm it, he says. He affirms it. Stephen Wolf, the hard line, Mr. Wolf the Greater, affirms the idea that we should have a society of Christians. Don't know what to do with the people outside of that society. Are they people? Do they count? Where are they at? I'm telling you, I have questions and it should basically have a very similar to Maoist structure affirming whatever his version of Christian theology is as opposed to socialist uh, theology. He adds elsewhere, a Christian society that is for itself will distrust atheists. Well, yeah, because we'd call your dumb asses out to cry blasphemy. I hate to be that guy because it's very critical. But according to who? Is this not blasphemy, Stephen Wolf? Correct any dishonoring of Christ. Well, <laughs> orient life around the Sabbath. Frown upon and suppress moral deviancy. Well, you know, that's again, moral deviancy is, is um, you know, doing any injury to the souls of the people of God. The subversion of the Christian government, Christian culture, and spiritual discipline. Is that moral deviancy? Do you have the power to suppress that? Because again, that's what Mao said the point of the dictatorship of the proletariat is. That's what he said the people's democratic dictatorship exists to do is suppress that deviancy. And repudiate, he says, neo-Anabaptists' attempts to subvert a durable Christian social order. So we have right there, a open confession that there are theological disputes. So we have to ask the question, whose theology? And if we're going to ask the question, whose theology, we have to ask the deeper question. How do we decide whose theology? Which leads to who gets to decide whose theology? Which leads to the question, which government agency will decide whose theology is acceptable and not acceptable in a civil society, uh, sorry, a civil society of Christians ruled by a Christian magistrate with the power to punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expression of such things in order to prevent, one, any injury to the souls of the people of God, two, the subversion of Christian government, Christian culture, or spiritual discipline, or three, civil disruption or unrest. This is extraordinary. And how concerning it is when you start to understand that as a political program, you're now swapping out socialist discipline for so-called Christian discipline under one particular theology, maybe, since it's really integralist in its nature where the strong arming is. Is it, is it going to be Catholic? It's going to be Catholic. It's going to be Catholic. Good luck, Protestants. You're getting used. You're getting used. They'll bend your knee. 
But then how's, well, who is this magistrate? You read Mao, you, you, anyway, sorry, you read Mao, you get super, super concerned about this. This is the same political program applied with a different religious bent. It's the same tyranny with a different religion, which we damn well better hope is perfectly good and holy or else it's not going to be pretty. But it's also Narnia. Most people don't have the slightest idea that they're totally depraved, that they have these fundamentally fallen state, that, that they have to understand things according to this confession of this reformed this or that. There's so many questions here, and this is just within the clearer version of it. Without death by a thousand qualifications of, well, we're not going to violate the First Amendment. We're not going to take people's religious liberty away. Sounds awfully damn like you are going to take people's religious liberty away. If the statement in, I quote, modern religious liberty advocates deny this and I affirm it, sounds a lot like you might. But then who's this magistrate, the Christian prince? Well, of course, it'll be lower magistrates. A magisterium, if you will, an episcopate. But the Christian prince is who is going to be in charge. See, the nation's going to have to be led by a so-called civil magistrate whom he calls the Christian prince. Do we want to be led by a Christian prince in the United States of America? Is that what this is about? What is this person? Not merely a good leader. This is Shenvi, a capable administrator, or even just a prized Christian. He also serves as a source of national pride and inspiration. Here's Stephen Wolfe. Mr. Wolf the Greater, describing the Christian prince who is going to be the civil magistrate with those powers that mirror Mao's. Having the highest office on earth, the good prince resembles God to the people. I thought we weren't blaspheming here. I thought we weren't dishonoring God here. I thought that's what we were not doing. My bad. Having the highest office on earth, but it's a nation. On earth, but it's a nation. Does that mean it applies to China? I mean, not that China is like this shining star. What about India? Is Putin, what's Putin going to do with this? You know, there are other countries. You know, is Prince Charles, he's an Anglican. Is he, is he getting in on this? By the way, Prince Charles is an Anglican. The UK is already a Christian nation. How's that going? Having the highest office on earth, the good prince resembles God to the people. Indeed, this is some Constantine Sol Invictus stuff right here is what this is. Indeed, he is the closest image of God on earth. How's the Pope going to take that one? This divine presence in the prince speaks to his role beyond civil administration. Through him, as the mediator of divine rule, the prince brings God near to the people. Yeah, that's there's no, there's no blasphemy here. Like the prince is like, hey God, come on down to the people through me. Yeah, right. What the hell is this? I'm not, I'm an atheist or something. I'm not supposed to give you guys theology. I mean, I God, looking at this is horrible, horrible. This, this, is, this is supposed to be grounded in Christian belief? Holy shit. If this is what Christian belief is, you can damn well bet I'm never going to get in on it. Like, holy crap. The prince is a sort of national god. Not in the sense of being divine himself. What the fuck does national god mean? I'm, I'm not supposed to swear during Christian stuff. What the fuck does that mean? Like, uh, what the fuck does that mean? The prince is a sort of national god but not in the sense of being divine himself. See, he's a god, but not a god. He's not divine, but he's but he's god, but not a god. The prince is a sort of national god, not in the sense of being divine himself or in materially transcending common humanity or as an object of prayer or spiritual worship or as a means of salvific grace, but as the mediator of divine rule for this nation and as, a, uh, as one with divinely granted power to direct them in their national completeness. 
So like the guy who sits on Peter's throne, whoops, that's the Pope. That's Catholic. That's not Protestant. That can't possibly be what he means. So it's something different than that. You mean like King Charles? Mm. Shh. Wait, what do we mean by this? This is the guy that's going to rule us. And he can call, you know, bring God closer to us. The Christian prince, he says, can adorn himself and his residence with Christian symbols as crosses were once painted on royal armor. Isn't that boss like royal armor? We get to wear royal armor now with crosses on it. His military or militia, which defends a Christian people. What about everybody else? And their church. Can't, which church? Which church? There are 50,000 denominations of Christianity in this world. Which church? Which one? They are not compatible. Which one? His military or militia, which defends a Christian people and their church, can be designated soldiers of Christ. Okay, Christ. I uh, kind of messed that up a little bit. Sorry. It's a bad name to mess up. Earlier, he says, I identified the prince as the mediator of civil rule, and I described him in godlike terms. Following scripture, the prince is an image of Christ to his people. And he says, we should pray that God would raise up a Christian prince from among us. So here's the question of how we, that you always have to answer in reality. How do we determine who gets political authority? Well, we will pray that God will raise up a Christian prince from among us, one who would suppress the enemies of God like Mao's dictatorship of the proletariat in the party, and elevate his people, or if it said the people, it would be much more clear what he's doing here, recover a worshiping people, restore masculine prominence in the land, and a spirit for dominion. Oh, so we're doing dominionist theology or uh, theonomy. Okay, fucking theonomists. Um, masculine prominence, I'll pause, because all throughout this book, one of the points that I do know is that he says that we live in a gynocracy, a, a woman ruled by women. <laughs> it's like, dude, come on. Like, you're not that, you're not that studly. Like, chill. Um, the wolf, the greater, maybe doth protest too much. But anyway, Restore masculine prominence in the land and a spirit for dominion. Affirm and conserve his people in place, not permitting their dissolution or capture, and inspire love of one's Christian country. So that's what Mr. Wolf the Greater is after. And it doesn't sound very America. It doesn't sound very America. But the thing is, every time I bring... so. Pause. Let's bounce over to Mr. Wolf the Lesser, and then we'll come back to Mr. Wolf the Greater on the idea of nations themselves, which is very unclear. Okay, so Mr. Wolf the Lesser says, oh, I'm not Mr. Wolf the Greater. I am Mr. Wolf the Lesser. I am lesser than Mr. Wolf the Greater. He actually doesn't say that. He says his name's William, not Stephen, and he's written his own ideas, and he doesn't agree with everything in Stephen's book, but if you ask him what he doesn't agree with, he won't tell you. He doesn't know what he doesn't agree with, or he won't admit what he doesn't agree with. And there's an explanation for this. There's an explanation. He's got a much softer death by a thousand qualifications approach uh, where you never quite can nail down what he's talking about or what he has in mind at all. It's just going to somehow work. We're going to have a more Christian culture, and that's somehow going to make a more Christian national identity, and that's going to make a more Christian nation. And somehow that's going to bleed into in the Christian church, churches, church, churches, church, church, or churches informing the civil government that will somehow not violate the First Amendment, 
um, by dissolving the barrier between church and state, at least in the direction of the uh, church being able to inform the state. But of course, maybe the, the, the state will then in turn, you know, show favor upon the church. Um, but in ways that don't violate the First Amendment, and nobody can be quite clear on what those ways are, because obviously what he would have to be admitting is sedition and the, the, the destruction of the First Amendment in the United States of America to go with that. Well, it turns out there's a name for this technique that we're dealing with, and you've probably heard of it. It's called um, the Mott and Bailey. You ever heard of the Mott and Bailey? So it turns out there's a guy, actually, I, I used to talk with this fella, and he's written for New Discourses in the past, named Josh, I think he wrote for New Discourses, maybe not, his name, maybe he didn't, but I've talked to this fella, Josh Dawes, D-A-W-S, Dawes, Josh Dawes, and he did a big thread about this when the big kerfuffle on Twitter broke out, and I immediately read the first couple tweets, and I don't care about this thread that much, so I didn't read the rest of it, and I just went and found the uh, classic Martin Bailey graphic meme, and quote tweeted it, and that's all I put, no words. So then I decide I should go back and actually read this thread. So I go back and I click on it, I start reading, and I get down to like tweet number seven or eight. No kidding. What Josh Dawes says is that we have this different argument between Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater, and William Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Lesser, with this argument where there's this very kind of hardline Christian prince, blah, 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 civil magistrate powers that look an awful lot like Mao, which he didn't mention that part. On the one hand, Christian nationalism looks very much like a Protestant-driven, ecumenical work with Catholic integralism. Looks exactly like that, is that, as a matter of fact. Being pushed very firmly here, where we're going to have a Christian prince who occupies the throne of Peter, although he didn't name it that way, and sits in the Vatican of the United States and he's the most powerful man on earth, or something like that. Um to paraphrase. And then on the other hand, we have this other Mr. Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Lesser, who's giving this very namby-pamby, zero details, vague, maybe just aspirational, maybe cultural definition of Christian nationalism with no clarity whatsoever in terms of what it actually means, with a thousand qualifications killing it off at every turn so that it's never the thing that you say, you know, you criticize it and it's just never that. It's always something else. That's not what it is. It's something else. It's not what it is. It's something else. It's, oh, no, nobody will ever have to have. It's like Obamacare. You get to choose your own church forever. If you want to, you get to choose your own church. You can go to any church you want to, and then, well, that you see how that lasts uh, or something. Well, it turns out that in the tweet number eight or nine or so, or seven or eight in this thread, Josh Dawes said we need both of these approaches. And why did he say so? He put the picture of the Mott and Bailey with actually the two wolves, 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 as the Mott and the Bailey. So the Mott is the easy defensible position that you retreat to when you're being scrutinized. And there's William Wolf. And then the Bailey is the indefensible position, which is actually your activist goal that you go out into anytime you think you can take ground. And there's Stephen Wolf in the case for Christian nationalism with a Christian prince and the magistrate. And he's saying that he wants to use the Mott and Bailey in order to advance the tactics or use this tactic to advance the concept of Christian nationalism into the United States. Where did the Mott and Bailey come from, though? Did James Lindsay make it up? No, James Lindsay didn't make it up. Is it just something everybody's always known? No, it turns out the answer is not that. It comes from a paper that was written by a friend of mine, Nicholas Shackle, a philosopher. He wrote it in 2005. And the title of that paper, Who Uses the Mott and Bailey? Who Uses Mott and Bailey Tactics? Well, Nicholas Shackle coined the term Mott and Bailey Doctrines. I have it in front of me in this paper titled, and I quote, The Vacuity, means emptiness, The Vacuity of Postmodern Methodology. 
sorry, postmodernist methodology. It is a postmodernist technique to facilitate between definitions. In other words, to strategically equivocate between something much more defensible, but vague or narrow or reasonable and something very activist and maybe specific. See, he describes this concept called a troll's truism, which is where you say something that has two meanings, um, but in a trolly kind of way, it has two meanings in the sense that one of the two meanings would be amazingly profound if it was true, but it turns out to be false. But on the other hand, in a very boring and limited way, it's true. What's an example? A very famous example from the philosopher Dan Dennett of this phenomenon, trolls truism, is love is just a word. In the most boring and idiotic way possible, it's true. It is a word. Love is a word. L-O-V-E. That's how you spell it. It's a word. See how postmodernist this is? And then if it were true the other way, though, all this, you know, all these wars, all of this building, all of these commitments in life, all these things we organize lives around mean nothing. So profound that love is just a word. We organize our lives around the pursuit of love, acting in love, changing the world through love, but it's just a word. That's so profoundly important if it were true, but it's false. Because love is a word that refers to something, and that something is not just a word. That's a troll's truism. So I have to say that because he starts with those words because that's what he laid it out to identify him on. Bailey says, trolls' truisms are used to insinuate an exciting falsehood, which is a desired doctrine, yet permit retreat to a trivial truth when pressed by an opponent. In so doing, they exhibit a property which makes them the simplest possible case of what I shall call a Mott and Bailey doctrine. Since a doctrine can single belief... Uh, can be a single belief or an entire body of beliefs. A Martin Bailey castle is a medieval system of defense in which a stone tower on a mound, the Mott, is surrounded by an area of land, the Bailey, which is in turn encompassed by some sort of barrier such as a ditch. Being dark and dank, the Mott is not a habitation of choice. The, re the only reason for its existence is the desirability of the Bailey which the combination of the mot and ditch makes relatively easy to retain despite attack by marauders. When only lightly pressed, the ditch makes small numbers of attackers easy to defeat as they struggle across it. When heavily pressed, the ditch is not defensible, and so neither is the bailey. Rather, one retreats to the insalubrious, which is a beautiful word, the insalubrious but defensible, perhaps impregnable mot. Eventually, the mar marauders give up when one is well placed. Uh, when one is then well placed to reoccupy desirable land, for my purposes, the desirable but only lightly defensible territory of the Mott and Bailey Castle—that is to say, the Bailey—represents a philosophical doctrine or position with similar properties, desirable to its proponent but only lightly defensible. Like you know, having a Christian prince and a Maoist organization around him. The Mott is defensible but undesired uh, is defensible but undesired position to which one retreats when hard pressed. I think it is evident that trolls' truisms have the Mott and Bailey property, since the exciting falsehoods constitute the desired but indefensible region within the ditch, whilst the trivial uh, trivial truth constitutes the defensible but dank Mott to which one may retreat when pressed. He's explaining the idea of postmodern philosophy, their methodology, 
as being this. An entire doctrine or theory may be a Mott and Bailey doctrine just by virtue of having a central core of defensible but not terribly interesting or original doctrines surrounded by a region of exciting but only lightly defensible doctrines. Let's plug this into the, the, the given circumstance. What am I talking about? Well, you might have a vague, aspirational, cultural Christian nationalism where we're going to recognize ourselves, you know, like it was, it was John Adams said, this constitution is for our moral and religious people is wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. Okay, so we have to be a moral and religious people and we aspire to that. Well, the question is, how do you make that happen, right? That's the real, that's the rubber meets the road question. Well, how? How are you going to make how are you going to make that happen? Well, then you have this Christian prince and a Christian magistrate who can who can stamp out atheism, as as Wolf the Greater says, right? And that can can enforce a Christian theology. But which one? Well, his obviously, right? And he'll he'll rule like he's on the highest office of the world, okay? Um, and that's that's the exciting but lightly defensible doctrine because in America, not only is that wholly unconstitutional and absolutely against the founding principle of the country, but it's positively objectionable. Nobody wants this. Nobody wants a Christian tyrant. So when AOC recently came out and said that, you know, this Super Bowl commercial, whatever it is, he's with us or whatever, the Jesus thing, uh, said that they've never worked so hard to spend this much money to make fascism look palatable. And I tweeted, I agree with AOC. She's talking about this and she's not wrong. And they're using a Martin Bailey, a postmodernist manipulative tactic to try to be able to advance a very scary doctrine that nobody would be able to defend under the guise of, well, we just want a cultural renewal, which is hee-haw nationalism, not Christian nationalism. So just as the medieval mot, Nicholas Shackle tells us, was often constructed by the stonemason's art from stone in the surrounding land, the mot of dull but defensible doctrines is often constructed by the use of sophists' arts from the desired but indefensible doctrines lying within the ditch. Just like William Wolfe, Mr. Wolf the Lesser's arguments for Christian nationalism and all the hee-haw nationalist defenses of them where they've been sucked into it. Diagnosis of a philosophical doctrine as being a Mott and Bailey doctrine is invariably fatal. One hopes because the Christian nationalist operation, Operation Christian Nationalism, is in fact a Mott and Bailey. How do we know? One of its proponents, not only did I identify it, I went into the very thread where I read it. I'm like, well, shit, this is a Mott and Bailey and identified it. And there we have the proponent of the thread saying that we need the, the, the two wolves as a Mott and Bailey in order to advance the doctrine. Diagnosis. I hope Nicholas Shackle is right here because di he says diagnosis of a philosophical doctrine as being a Mott and Bailey doctrine is invariably fatal. Once it is made relatively obvious to those familiar with the doctrine that the doctrine's survival required a systematic vacillation between exploiting the desired territory and retreating to the Mott when pressed, the dialectic between many refutations of specific postmodernist doctrines and the postmodern deferences correspond exactly to the dynamics of Mott and Bailey doctrines. So why is the case for Christian nationalism literally a postmodernist doctrine? Why? Is that what you want, postmodernist Christianity? When pressed with refutation, the postmodernists retreat to their mots. Well, we just want Christian renewal. Only to venture out and, re and repossess the desired territory when the refutation is not in immediate evidence. For these reasons, I think the proper diagnosis of postmodernism is precisely that it is a Mott and Bailey doctrine. I do not have time to defend that rather large claim in detail here. Rather, we are going to look at some examples. I hope that for those familiar with postmodernism as a whole, seeing the mechanism laid bare in a few cases will suffice to make evident. 
larger truth. And then he goes on to, I'm not going to read any more of this. He goes on to expose Foucault and some others. Okay. So remember this whole thing about the Christian prince? Didn't that sound really good? That Christian prince idea. And let's go back to the, what did the, what did the Bailey look like again here? The question is whether a Christian magistrate, this is Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater, having civil rule over a civil society of Christians may punish with civil power, false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expressions of such things in order to one, prevent any injury to the souls of the people of God, two, the subversion of Christian government, Christian culture, or spiritual discipline, or three, civil disruption or unrest. Modern religious liberty advocates deny this, and I affirm it. A Christian society that is, for itself, will distrust atheists, decry blasphemy, correct any dishonoring of Christ, orient life around the Sabbath, frown upon and suppress moral deviancy, and repudiate Neo-Anabaptist attempts to subvert durable, a durable Christian social order, you know, a sustainable Christianity, if you will. So there's your Bailey with your Christian prince striding around as God, bestriding the land, you know, like Napoleon and Hegel's description of him, because what uh, we're actually dealing with, with Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater's argument here is actually the form of government outlined by Hegel and philosophy of right. If we had time, we would go through philosophy right and point out. But what he argues is when you first read it, it looks very much like the United States. But instead of a president, an executive with all these limited powers, you end up having a, ta-da, it's not a, exactly a Christian prince, but it sort of is. You end up having a, um, a, 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 a the, the organization is a constitutional monarchy. So you end up having a monarch who has adopted the correct view of the world, which for Hegel would have been his pietist theology, um, which we also know happens to be uh, dialectical in nature, just like the postmodernist. And we ha- we happen to know that it is um, a dialectical Christianity, a process-driven theology, where the three parts of the Godhead are a process of becoming. So, okay, that's all concerning you. So the questions start becoming very big. Like, how are we going to determine who the Christian prince is? Who's going to determine who the Christian prince is? What power does that Christian prince have? Are they a figurehead? Are they like the King of England? What kind of, how is this American? How is this compatible with the constitution of the United States? How do you achieve this without unconstituting the United States and reconstituting it? Which, when you reconstitute it differently, is no longer the United States because the United States is a country that's constituted by the United States Constitution. And if you change the Constitution, you change the nation. How do we do this? If it's going to, say, punish atheists, what are you going to do? Do you exclude them from the ranks of the people like Mao? Is that what that means? What do you, what do, you do? Do I have to go to church? Who's going to make me? Which three-letter agency are you going to empower to send me to church? And which church can I go to or not go to? Which church do I have to go to? Where's the list? How do you get on the list? Which three-letter agency is going to decide what the list looks like? I guess the neo-Anabaptists aren't going to be on the list. That's not okay, so they're out. What about the Mormons? Can Mormons be in this new Christian nation? Are Mormons allowed? Is that Are they invited? What about Catholics? Are Catholics Okay. I mean, they're not Protestant. They're not Calvinist. They're not Reformed. Do they count? Are they Christian or are they not? Because I know there's a big issue between Protestants and Catholics on that very point, right? What about Orthodox? Where are they? 
if we're just within the Baptists, like what happens when there's a huge fight? Say, say the Pado Baptists are in power and the Credo Baptists say that that's not okay. What happens? How do we resolve that? How do we decide? Because there are theological disputes. There are 50,000 denominations. How do you choose which ones are valid and which ones aren't? And then we go to, that's Mr. these are real questions around Mr. Wolf the Greater, but we turn to Mr. Wolf the Lesser and we see things like, well, it doesn't really matter. If you're Christian, you're Christian. So if I'm a you know, charismatic snake handler or Westboro Baptist or something actually um, quite progressive and left professing, like if I'm a completely woke church with a drag queen pastor, does that count? Is that blasphemy? But that if that doesn't count, who makes the determination? So we're going to have drag queen Christianity. We're going to have drag queen church because they say they're Christian. That's happening in the Methodist church. In the Methodist church. It's happening in the Anglican church. Okay, so that's happening. Do we have the social gospel from Walter Rauschenbusch, the very left Baptists of yesteryear? Do we have the Christian life left, which is usually the, the Catholic left, is what that refers to? Are they allowed? Or is that blasphemy? And if they're not allowed, who makes the list? And where is that list kept? And what three-letter agency determines the list? And what three-letter agency enforces the list? Does the Department of Justice start to make lists of churches that aren't qualified? Do I have to, Which church can I go to is a question. I have to go to a church now. Well, okay, great for my religious liberty, but we already saw Stephen Wolf denies religious liberty. That doesn't matter. Atheism will be illegal. Atheism will be stamped out. Blasphemy will be too. How do you determine which churches count and which ones don't? Obviously, the Anabaptists are out. Which churches count? Who decides? Well, it's going to have to be a government agency. And when you go back to Mr. Wolf the Lesser, and he says, no, 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 it's not like that. We're just going to have certain people are going to have the ear of, say, the presidency or the governor or, you know, the, the legislature, the Congress. We're going to bring Christian voices to the, to the table. They're going to have a seat at the table. Okay, fine. Same question. Which ones? Okay, so I get to be an atheist, and maybe I'm not excluded from society like Mao would do, like Mr. Wolf the Greater might. Mr. Wolf the Lesser over here in the Ma isn't going to be so cruel. But certain people are going to... Is the president going to have to meet with a representative of all 50,000 Christian denominations? Again, what about the Mormons? How about the Catholics? What about drag queen pastor? Which ones get the ear? Which ones are allowed and which ones aren't? Is it the people who just happen to have power? So it comes down to like the power plays that happen within the Southern Baptist Convention get to determine, for example, who gets access to the seats to, to the seat of power in the United States if it's still constituted as the, as the country that it was. Who gets to have that, that access, that authority? How do you answer that question? And rather than working it out now, of course, if, if we're explicitly naming ourselves a Christian nation and saying that we're explicitly leaning into that, the question becomes who makes the list? Who says what counts? And again, are we just subject to the power plays of entities like the Southern Baptist Convention and Presbyterian Church of America or Presbyterian Church USA? Which ones? Who? These are not trivial questions. We're talking about, create, are we cre creating a ministry of religion, a d department of religion at the federal government? Will it work like the Department of Education? Will it enforce a religious education? What will, it, what will it do? Will it maintain the list? What if somebody tries to violate the list? 
do we send the, the FBI after them? Is it the Religious Bureau of Investigation, the RBI, the, the, which the Catholic Integralists would call the Inquisition? Who do we, who, how did, I'm serious. I'm not being glib. How the hell is any of this stuff supposed to work? Well, Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater, explained how Mr. Wolf the Lesser's idiotic, vague plan, which will not work, has no workable parts. He explained over here in the Bailey exactly how it'll work. There will be a magistrate who has the authority of God on earth. And he's going to call all the damn shots, which sounds an awful lot like a Christian dictatorship. And I hate to be the one to say that absolutely freaking lutely AOC was right. But of course, AOC plays her part as well. The goal is for this thing to look big and scary so the NPR freaks out about it. And there's a poll and everybody freaks out about it and tie it to January 6th. And AOC, of course, almost she died 11 times that day, as we all know. She died 16, 19 times that day. Um, it was a horrible day for her. She was in a completely different building across the street in the Cannon Building, which I saw and saw how far it is from the physical capital. Um, she was t terrifying for her, I'm sure. She almost died. She definitely almost died when the police came to make sure she was okay. That was terrifying and almost died. And she's going to use all of those same mechanisms to turn back on this, which she's identifying correctly, that's plugging into this narrative. And the trap becomes clear. So Mr. Wolf the Lesser, William Wolf's vague, friendly, hee-haw nationalism plan from the State Department doesn't, um, doesn't, ha it has no how. It has no rubber meeting any road. That's the mod. Oh, we're just going to do this. It's just going to be that. Oh, nobody's going to lose their religious liberty. You can go to any, you can have any doctor you want after we have, uh, have Obama care or, or Wolf Church. But over here, Mr. Wolf the Greater, Stephen Wolf, has outlined a very clear book-length plan that was a huge bestseller and is reckoned by other people, many other people, as the book you're going to have to reckon with if you're going to try to take on or dismiss Christian nationalism, which all I had to read was like two paragraphs from me. I'm like, holy shit, this thing's insane. But... Um, Mr. Wolf is uh, the greater, is very controversial, whereas Mr. Wolf the lesser is a provocateur trying to build a brand by saying banal Christian things um, in very holy ways. And, you know, I believe in creation, not evolution. I'm not descended from a fish. I believe in God, not Darwin, which just tells you, uh, by the way, nobody who accepts the biological theory of evolution as the explanation for biological diversity believes in Darwin. We don't hold up a church figure and believe in them. We examine the available evidence and draw conclusions, which anybody could do and point out flaws with Darwin's formulation, for example, or whatever. So what William Wolfe is telling you when he says he believes in God, not Darwin, is that he looks to some person who told him what God means, and that's who he actually believes. Right? And in this case, it very much looks like it might be himself. Um, just having read a large volume of his tweets uh, and got a sense of this guy. But um, Stephen Wolf is a little smarter and a little more disciplined, a little less blatantly, stupidly provocative. But he tweeted um, in a thread about women, about whether or not women should be permitted to vote. Uh, he went on to say uh, that he affirms the franchise, uh, in other words, the right to vote, for all adult men and women, uh, when asked if he affirms the franchise for all adult men and women, he responded succinctly, no. So this is repeal the 19th, This is which is really popular with like 
TARDCON, which is short for retarded conservatives, but it also is an intentional misspelling of TradCon, like traditional conservatives. Um, yeah, there's lots of issues that stem from feminism, but taking away women's right to vote, disenfranchising women, I don't think is a winner, which means you can tell that this is a, a winner of a, of a position. So you can tell that this is a doctrine meant to lose. It's not a serious political doctrine that he's putting forth, but no, he doesn't believe that women should vote. So then he got asked a follow-up question on inter group is what it says here in Mr. Shenvey's, but interracial marriages. And he replied, there is a difference between something being sinful absolutely and something being sinful relatively. Inter-ethnic marriage can be sinful relatively, but not absolutely. So that's a weird position to stake out um, for Mr. Wolf the Greater, but it's based on his definition of ethnicity or a nation, which he ties together. Now, this is important because I said in the podcast about Mr. O'Fallon not being a Christian nationalist. By the way, Mr. O'Fallon points out all the time that one of their omissions is to repeal the 19th Amendment and rescind the women, uh, the right to vote for women, and that it's therefore obviously a position that's not meant to win, but rather uh, an operation of some kind in all likelihood. It is meant to fail. It is a trap or an op, or both. Uh, but that aside, this is an, uh, something that happens. Every time I bring this up, every time I argue about the Christian nationalism on Twitter, it's really funny. Because I get like the William Wolf, Mr. Wolf, the lesser argument every time. Oh, it's just this, and it doesn't mean that. And then 50 people in the replies are like, we're going to bend your knee. We're going to force you to be Christian. We're going to kill you if you're an I mean, it's literally like stuff like that. And I'm always like, yeah, go ahead and try to bend my knee. I'm going to bend yours backwards. Like, we're not going to do this. Like, you're not going to force me into your religion. You're just not going to. You might kill me, but you're not going to force me into your religion. Like, go to hell. And you will for that kind of shit. So enjoy it. Um, if I might wax theological for a moment. But the thing is, is like, I get that. And then I get this whole thing about, I'll say something, you know, it'll be like, well, Christian, like Mr. Wolf, the lesser, William wrote this. Uh, article. It's no, it's not about whiteness. It's not about white. It's not about white. But he also posts all these tweets about how CRT is just anti-white. And you don't need complicated explanations like some atheist would give. It's just anti-white. It's just anti-white and blah, blah, blah. And so there is this weird racial ethnic component to the way William Wolfe looks at this, except just like, hey, you know how the woke accept uh, white people, the CRT people accept white people who are CRT advocates. I mean, you can have black people who support the Christian nationalism within. I mean, it's the same structure. It's exactly the same thing. But the problem is, is I have 50 people come in and say, no, 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 no. This doesn't make any sense. No, nation means a group of people. It means an ethnicity. So there is no escaping. There is no escaping Christian nationalism without it being ethnic nationalism. And you know what they mean by that. And sometimes they say what they mean by that. And this is where in my podcast about Mr. O'Fallon, which I started this little little tangent or this little thread with, I said my brain back in 2019 when I first met Mike O'Fallon and I first read about him in a Media Matters hit piece, and it said explicitly that he was a Christian nationalist, which was explicitly false after he had carefully avoided accepting that label from them that he tried to, they tried to pin on him. I translated to white nationalist and jumped to Nazi and called Peter Brigosian panicking. We can't work with this guy. He's a white nationalist. 
Little did I know he's half Cuban and married to a Chinese woman. Um, he's terrible at his white nationalism. He's not even a nationalist. He's this thing called a nationist, which I didn't understand at first. But it, uh, he explained it to me, and it makes total sense to me. It's the idea that nations should be able to exist and be sovereign, but it has nothing to do with any of the meanings of nationalism, which are their own traps uh, when dealing with communists. It doesn't mean anything jingoistic. It he is a patriot, but it doesn't mean you have to even be patriotic. It means that in his definition that borders exist. Borders define the boundaries between political entities called nations, which are political regions subject to a set of laws that are followed within that. So on one side of each on each side of on any border, there are there are unique laws. So on one side of the border there are these laws, on the other side of the border there are those laws that are sovereign in each of those two regions and that nations have their the right to exist define their borders and enforce their laws within them it's actually a very non-nationalistic argument there's definitely no raw raw jingoism anywhere near it and there's certainly no nationalist party flavored kind of stuff like the guomintang or uh, the various nationalist parties that you know integralism resembles a lot more um this christian nationalist thing well the thing is this ethnic thing doesn't go away, and there's a reason for this within Mr. Wolf the Greater, Stephen Wolf. Um, but first, let me just actually tell you what he says in response to this. So I'll read from Shenby. When Wolf uses the term ethnicity, he's not using it in its colloquial sense to refer to categories like French, Hispanic, Chinese, Irish, etc. Instead, he explicitly writes, and now we're going to hear from Stephen Wolf the Greater, I use the terms ethnicity and nation almost synonymously. So, what am I saying here? Though I use the former to emphasize, uh, ethnicity, to emphasize the particular features that distinguish one people group from another, while nation is used to emphasize the unity of the whole through, uh, sorry, though no nation, properly speaking, is composed of two or more ethnicities. Now, that's a challenge in a country that's got a motto like e pluribus unum from many one. So he's saying that there's an American ethnicity, but in America we aren't kind of an ethnicity um, in the sense that we are one people group. Uh, we are a bunch of people groups that ascribe to a set of principles and ideas and ideals. Um, that's the difference of the American experiment. Um, one of the more common phrases Shenvey tells us that Stephen Wolf uses to characterize ethnicity is, quote, your own people. And Shenvey clarifies that is the people you recognize as, quote, your own people. And so that means if you're my people, it doesn't matter who you actually are, right? It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Hispanic or whatever. Ethnicity can cross racial lines, as Shenvey tells us. Uh, he says, Wolf says, given my friendships and associations with people of different ancestry, I can say that being, quote, white is unnecessary both to recognize themselves in what I describe and to cooperate with someone like me in a common nationalist project. This is not a, quote, white nationalist argument, for in my view, the designation, quote, white, as it is used today, hinders and distracts people from recognizing and acting for their people groups, many of which, to be sure, are majority white, but are not so on the basis of modern racialist principle. Okay, so he even explicitly says uh, people of different ancestral origins can be part of the same ethnicity. And so this is it, it, this view. So what are we actually dealing with here? Um, I want to draw, you know, since I mentioned critical race theory. And, you know, he has, it, sorry, let me just give you a little bit more. I'll come back to the critical race theory in a second. W.B. Du Bois is who we're about to talk about. Uh, he says, 
people of different ethnic groups can exercise respect for difference, conduct some routine business with each other, join in inter-ethnic alliances for mutual good and exercise common humanity, for example, the Good Samaritan, but they cannot have a life together that goes beyond mutual alliance. So it might be, you know, low-key sinful to be in a inter-ethnic marriage, um, for example, but those aren't necessarily racial. And so this is a question. So in a Christian nation, what does that mean? You know, that they're, they are my people precisely because they were Christ people. This is the idea, right? So your people are Christ people in a Christian nation. Um, this is something very important to consider though. Where, what is he talking about? And this is where we come back to critical race theory. Now I'll stop reading from, uh, the wolves at this point and just kind of raise some questions and, and comments. Um, Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater, in his book, The Case for Christian Nationalism, is quite explicit that he has based his program on uh, Wilhelm Gottfried Herder, or Herder, the German philosopher who was relatively famous for his outlines of German nationalism. Uh, turns out that the character W.E.B. Du Bois went and studied. There were lots of nationalists, by the way, uh, that W.E.B. Du Bois studied with, but he went to study with some of these nationalists and specifically studied Herderian nationalism while in Germany, which he fell in love with. This was in 18, if I remember my dates right, 94 and 5. I might be off by two, one or two. But anyway, at any rate, W.E.B. Du Bois is considered the great-grandfather or great-godfather of critical race theory, the first critical race theorist, in particular with his book that he published in 1903 called The Souls of Black Folk. And he explains in the very beginning of The Souls of Black Folk what he's on about. And what had happened was he went to Germany. And here he is, a black man trying to get a PhD in a German university. He ends up getting it from Harvard, not in Germany, in the late 1800s. First black PhD at Harvard. Um having grown up in the Reconstructionist South, or sorry, Reconstructionist United States, uh, following the Civil War, had some very poignant thoughts on this, and off he goes to study German uh, philosophy in Germany um, in the 1890s, and he discovers German nationalism, and he's captured by it, so much so that he very famously, if you see pictures of W.E. Du Bois, he um, dressed and maintained his hair and beard and so on strangely for uh, to look at him for the rest of his life. And that's because he was actually trying to imitate the Prussian style of the late 1890s. Yeah, the 1890s. And he, like for example, celebrated the Kaiser's birthday until his death. Uh, in, I think the 1950s is when Du Bois died. And um, he got very captured with the idea of, of this folkish nationalism, which, of course, a character some 40 years later uh, articulated, you know, with, um, you know, Ein Folk, uh, Ein Reich, Ein Fuhrer, um, one people, one. Uh, Christian polity or something. Um, one Reich, one father. Okay, so we all know who said that, right? We all know who said that. Please tell me you know who said that. Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. And so this national, I'm not saying this, this is necessarily where that goes. It's just called the National Conservative Workers Party. I'm just 
I'm not saying that's where it goes. I have no doubt that they're much more savvy than being so stupid. Um, so what we have is that W.E.B. Du Bois became caught up in Herderian folkish nationalism. And what he did was he ascribed in the, the souls of black folk. He said that, why is it the souls, plural, of black folk, singular, and folk? Folk, not people. Folk. What he was caught up in is the idea of folkish nationalism, that a folk your people defines an ethnicity and that black people in the United States find themselves with a split soul with two souls. That's why they have souls, the souls of black folk. So there's black folk, which are a Herderian nationalist concept, black folk. They're a nation unto themselves an ethnicity, but they're embedded within the United States within America. And he asked the question, is it possible to be black or to be a Negro? He specifically says, and American, a, a Negro and an American. In other words, is it possible to occupy this dual soul? And then from this, he builds up the concept of dual consciousness or double consciousness, which becomes the concept of standpoint theory or standpoint epistemology later that we now deal with in so-called standpoint positionality under intersectional thought and woke and CRT adopts this and Kimberly Crenshaw in Mapping the Margins leans into it very explicitly and very intentionally, um, that there is a strategic uh, discourse of resistance and identifying with, with, with the concept, I am black, and embracing that kind of nationalist folkish identity. Now, the thing is, why do I bring this up? CRT is born out of this folkish identity to black folk. And instead of rather trying to say, how are we American in overcoming that ethnic difference, if, say, Stephen Wolf's hypothesis that having multiple ethnicities is a problem within a single polity, rather than grappling with that, it leans into the idea that, no, we're going to lean into our differences and our nationality, our folkish view of ourselves. And so white folk become a folk too. Actually, Du Bois published another book called The Souls of White Folk, which is a collection of essays some years later. And so there's this folkish nationalist thing, and then you have nations within nations that are at odds with each other that create various issues. And one could summarize the whiteness studies arm, as I did in race Marxism, of critical race theory as being an attempt to give a white folkish identity to white folk and by awakening in them an anti-racist consciousness or a critical race consciousness and simultaneously to awaken a black folkish nationalist identity in black folk that's also tied to an anti-racist See, these are two aspects in opposite form, two aspects of the same phenomenon of anti-racism, one white and one black, and occupying the opposite positionalities within the same power dynamic. And then you can dialectically synthesize them out and achieve racial justice. You see, this is the strategy. But what we have with, with Stephen Wolf, Mr. Wolf the Greater, in this case, with the case for Christian nationalism, is he's saying that Christian nationalism should be a folkish nationalism. And where does that go? How does that work? How are we going to have a folkish nationalism rooted in Christianity? We have 50,000 denominations. What are we going to do? Is this denomination going to get that region and that denomination get this region? Are they going to go to war like the various religious wars of the um, last 500 years in Europe until just the last few? 
Um, what, what, how are you going to, what are we going to do with those differences? Is each one of them a folk? Is there one folk? Is there a meta folk? What is there? Um, how do we deal with the Pado baptist folk and the Credo baptist folk and their differences? Do they each get a region? Do they get like, one gets like the upper Midwest and the other one gets like, you know, the, the Ohio river Valley? Like what, how do we do this? And then what are they? Are they, how are they not like kind of, do they get their own laws under their own Christian prince? Does that make them kind of, which one of them is the highest, office in the land. Uh, how do we resolve those? I mean, how do we do any of this? But none of this, how did, how is any of this supposed to work? These are real questions, except through dictatorial power, through whichever of those factions happens to be best positioned and, and most powerful at any given time. And why are we relying on a view of, of Christian nationalism that's folkish nationalism, that's based in Heritor, it's building out Hegel's philosophy of right, which is a dialectical constitutional monarchy. Why are, why, why are we, why, why, why would we do that when we're the United States of America, uh, which is something completely different. It's constituted in its first amendment, uh, of the bill of rights specifically not to end up in that position. Do they become autonomous zones? Like is the, you know, does the upper Midwest credo Baptist pocket and I guess the Moscow, Idaho theonomy zone, like, do they just do whatever they want? Are they subject to the same laws? How does this work? How is any of it supposed to work? Are we going to just balkanize the nation? Like Andrew Torba said, like Andrew Torba said, wrote an article, by the way, he pushes Christian nationalism real hard. He's the CEO of Gab. He's openly anti-Semitic. It's kind of a hot mess. Um, I assume he's an op, uh, but I don't know that of course, but he wrote an article back in October or maybe November, it was November, it was after the election, uh, after the midterms didn't go the way, he said the way forward is to balkanize and build. So we're supposed to balkanize the country into a bunch of kind of Christian autonomous zones and then build up within them? Is that the objective? Like, how is that not sedition? How dare you call yourself an American if that's what you're thinking we're supposed to do? How dare you? Have you given up on this country? But of course they've given up on this country. Of course they have. But I still am left with so many questions about how this is supposed to work. We know now, though, let's summarize. We know now that we have a two positions, at least, within Christian nationalism. There are more. This so-called movement. We know that there are at least two positions. One that we are representing by Mr. Wolf the Lesser, William Wolf, and one that we are representing by Mr. Wolf the Greater, Stephen Wolf. And we know that they are being used in a dialectical strategy called the Mott and Bailey to advance the agendas of both. Um, we know that the Bailey is the desired, the stronger of the two is the desired uh, target, and that the weaker of the two, um, Williams, is used to protect and advance that. And we have to wonder why we're going along with this. We also know that there's a long building narrative arc over a decade old uh, that's already got deeply laid tracks that demonstrate that this is an obvious trap and might be an uh, outright fed up. I do remind you that William Wolfe very proudly worked for the State Department um, before he became whatever he is now at the at Liberty University Standing for Freedom Center, um, writing articles and so on. Um, about Christian nationalism and otherwise, uh, it, which one of those visions are we going to be in? Are we going to be in the vague aspirational one? And if so, how's that different from what we actually have now? What's stopping us from becoming culturally more of a Christian nation? Why don't you just go evangelize? Why don't you go get your apologetics straight instead of writing this stupid garbage? 
why don't you try to uh, invite people to your church and make your message resonate with them uh, instead of doing weird Christian nationalist stuff that freaks people out? Why are you, um, why not take a stand to clean up the denominations instead of trying to take on a nation when your room's not even clean yet? Have you not read your basic Jordan Peterson? He's not wrong. You can't clean up your denomination, say the Southern Baptist Convention, and you're going to rule the country? Are you out of your friggin' mind? Are you out? Like, what? Are you stupid? Um, why would anybody let you do that? How is that supposed to work? So, okay, so anybody can have whatever church, but somehow atheists are excluded, but somehow they're going to be stamped out, and it's going to be illegal and blasphemers. I still want to know what to do with the drag queen pastor. That's blasphemy, right? I don't necessarily disagree that it's blasphemy that it's heretical. But if you're going to stamp it out, you're going to have to have some authority to do so. And if you're going to stamp it out using the civil government, now we're in a different position. Because now you do have explicitly the government weighing in on a issue that's First Amendment protected. Um, it's not a cultural issue at that point. It becomes a, a civil government issue. And now we're out of the mot and into the bailey because you can't answer any questions in the mot, which is intentionally vague. And unclear. But we get into the Bailey, and again, I come back to those key questions. How is this going to be organized? This Christian prince or our king or whatever he's going to be, how does this work? What church do I have to go to? Where's my list? Who, deci who decides who's on that list? Where's the drag queen pr priest? Where's the drag queen pastor? Are they on the list? Is the Christian left on the list? Social gospel on the list? Mormons on the list? Jehovah's Witnesses on the list? Where are they? Are those heretical? Are you going to stamp that out? Where are these people? Where am I? And again, who's enforcing it? Is there going to be a religious bureau of investigation? Are you going to create a three-letter law enforcement agency to make sure? Or are you just going to do what they do like with the WEF, with the World Economic Forum, or, you, or the Chinese social criticism? Are you just going to build a society where you're excluded if you don't participate? You know, if you don't show the mark on your hand or forehead that you can't buy or sell, and therefore you can't participate in the society, but all you have to do is get baptized, and you can have your mark, and then you can buy and sell. I don't know if that's in the Bible anywhere. I don't know if that's warned about. I don't know if, in fact, it's literally held up as the thing that the thing that's holding itself up as the Christian savior, as a false savior, would do in order to get people to buy into its false salvation program so that they would be destroyed. I don't know. Is that chapter 17 of the book of Revelation? I can't remember. My theology is no good. I'm an atheist. You're not supposed to listen to me. So I have so many questions, and they're all, how is this real? How does this work? If you get into the anywhere into the zone of this Christian nationalist movement that's defensible, even if you take off of the table that it's a blatant and obvious trap with a blatant and obvious narrative arc that the left is constructing to ensnare people in this trap, you're left with a thousand practical questions. How is this going to work? And if it's not, if you're going to actually kill it through a thousand qualifications— how is it different from what we're doing already? It's not, actually. It doesn't achieve anything except that you just say those words and like proclaim it and feel virtuous. Okay, great. So you, you've got your armor of God as a virtue signal or something? Is that what you're doing? Like, why? What? But then if you want to make any of those questions, as soon as those questions start to get answers, you end up... At, Maybe not in Stephen Wolf's specific formulation of it, but you end up in something like it. Maybe it's the Catholic integralist side. Maybe it's something calling itself American reformer. 
where they're pushing exactly these ideas um, while building out tech apparatuses that they'll profit from when they get you as the uh, program proceeds. Doesn't look at all like Revelation. Um, the problem is, is you have lots of how questions. How is this supposed to work? Who's going to do it? What organizations? Who's going to get to choose those? Who gets to talk to the president? Who gets to be on the governor's council? Which churches are allowed? Which churches aren't allowed? Which Christianity? Which doctrine? Which is acceptable? Which isn't? Which is heretical? Who's blaspheming? Who gets to decide those things? These are fundamental critical questions that must be answered in order to proceed. And when you start answering those questions, you start getting something that sounds an awful lot in Stephen Wolf's own words like Mao Zedong. And what do you do with that? Granted, the ideology is not socialism, but the tyranny can be the same. The tyranny can be the same. And so I have more questions than answers with regard to Christian nationalism. I have a lot of answers too. It's an obvious trap. It might be a direct like entrapment operation. I call it Operation Christian Nationalism for a reason. Why does it advance with Amat and Bailey? Why do its proponents advocate for a postmodernist methodology? Why do they use it? Have they decided to pick up the ring? I mean, they're the tough guy, right? The tough, righteous man like Boromir in the Lord of the Rings. Do they not know that what made Boromir win his dignity back after he tried to attack Frodo and steal the ring was that he repented of that? abandoned it and gave up his life to defend the innocent? Do they not know that that's why he died an honorable death as, as opposed to a horrifically shameful one? Do they not understand the warning of that book, which I'm sure is classist as they like? I brought this up on Twitter the other day, and somebody told me that the whole point of that book is actually to destroy all of this, the inferior races and install a uh, proud ethnically pure king and overrule over the land. I'm like, holy shit, you guys are seriously messed up. But anyway, do they not understand that if you take the ring to Minas Tirith, then it turns into a new Baradur, it becomes a new Tower of Evil at best, or it betrays, like it betrayed Isildur and makes its way back. Um, do they not understand that you can't take the ring of power, in other words, the Mott and Bailey postmodern uh, you know, me methodologies, and use them to advance something actually good and true? Do they understand even if they're moved by, say, Christian pity, Christian um, goodwill as a good Samaritan or whatever, where Gandalf and Galadriel talk about how they would set themselves up with the ring as somebody who um, would be moved by doing good in the world to the point where they become a horrific tyrant that's acting in the most evil way possible, and namely in the apparent benefit of those whom they subjugate. Uh, do they not understand the point of these? And I don't mean to be dorky in the Lord of the Rings here after I make fun of Narnia, but um, I mean, Middle Earth is also a little silly, but this is an important, you know, piece of cultural architecture that conveys the story that taking up things like postmodernist methodology to advance a program that in its more uh, strident and, and activist angles reads exactly like Mao Zedong with a different religion underneath it, um, some particular theonomist Christianity, because it claims dominion, as opposed to, um, I mean, he claimed dominion explicitly, as opposed to socialism. Um, how, is, how is any of this supposed to be acceptable to us? And again, when you get in there, then you start having ugly questions. 
What church do we have to go to? Who's making the list? Who's making us go? What if we don't go? Do we get arrested? Do we get in trouble? They say, no, 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 no. Do we just get excluded from society? Do we get a mark on our hand or forehead that tells us what we can buy and sell? What, how, do, how does it work? How does any of it work? And so I encourage you, if you're seeing this Christian nationalist stuff and you want to be a badass that saves our country to repent of it, um, quite seriously, I don't think that this is what you want to be doing. I don't think you want to be the grandma jerked off the pew and placed into the gulag of January 6, 2.0. I don't think uh, you want to be the foil, and in the words of Beautiful Trouble, the reaction. Why? Because your target's reaction is the real action. You don't want to be the pretext for the next set of emergency powers that are where the narrative has already been built up, and it's being built up. The operation is clear from the leftist perspective how this works. So why are we taking this seriously? Why is this, why is this still happening? Why are people still talking about this? so vigorously? These are the kinds of questions I have, aside from the infinite practical questions that apparently are going to lead me to have to bend people's knees backwards, because they tell you, you know, William Wolf, the lesser, comes out and says his wonderful wolfy things. His sheep's clothing is on nicely. He says his wolfy things like that, no, 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 nobody, nobody's going to enforce anything like that on you. And then in the replies in the comments underneath, 50 people show up and tell you that they're going to kill you if they can't convert you. And so you have to wonder what's really going on here. Why are we doing this? My suggestion to you is that you grow in your discernment. If you're a Christian, I suggest that you read books like um, Jeremiah uh, chapter 23, um, Ezekiel chapter 34. Uh, if you're Matthew 6, if you're dealing with William Wolfe, Matthew 6, 5, where, you know, you're not supposed to pray out in front of everybody, Mr. Wolf. Um, you've received your reward in full, I suppose, probably from the State Department. Uh, I would encourage you to take very seriously that this this is a blatant trap, that it might be worse than a blatant trap. It may be a big setup. I would encourage you not to support it. I would encourage you to step away from it and thus I can stop having to waste my time thinking about and talking about it and can actually focus on dismantling the Maoist revolution that we're under already, which also depended in its success upon a nationalist reaction, as Mao told us. So consider it. I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm not supposed to tell you theological advice and so on. I'm not going to tell you anybody what to do with their faith, unlike these chuckleheads. But you should consider it. 